Welcome to the Beyond Birth Podcast. Join us each week as we take the conversation of motherhood beyond birth. I'm your co-host, Liz Winters, a nutritional therapy practitioner, certified pre and postnatal coach, and mama. I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Jenny Anderson, yoga teacher, full spectrum doula, and mama. Our hope is to inspire, educate, and empower women as they navigate pregnancy, postpartum, and parenthood with evidence-based guidance, informative interviews, and hopefully entertaining anecdotes from our perspectives as moms, entrepreneurs, and birth professionals. While you're listening, please keep in mind that the information on this podcast is for general purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. Thanks so much for joining us. Hello, all. Welcome to another episode of the Beyond Birth Podcast. This is Liz Winters here, and I am joined by a very awesome guest, Melissa Gu- Guevara. I didn't ask you how to say your last name. Oh my gosh, it's I'm embarrassed. Guevara. Guevara. Well, way to screw that up, Liz. Sorry. <laughs> Guevara. Okay. Melissa, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm really, really excited to be here. <laughs> I am super, super excited to have you here. Um, for those that don't know Melissa Guevara, uh, she has her master's degree in early childhood special education and administrative services, and she works as a special education administrator and is the executive director of the nonprofit Birth Fit for Everyone. Melissa resides in Fairfield, California with her partner and three-year-old son. Son, my gosh, this is like my sleep deprivation kicking in. I apologize. <laughs> I'm sure I'll have plenty of these moments too. Right. It's like that real parent life. Um, Melissa's core values are inclusion, advocacy, and connection. And I love that you included your core values in your bio. I think that that just really gives a good picture of who you are as a human. And I'm just, I'm just so pleased to have you here. Thanks for taking the time. First, thank you for having me. This is, this is my first podcast recording. So no way, really? Yeah. I'm so I'm, so ex- like, I'm extra honored. Yes, I, me too. And I'm super nervous, but it's going to be fine. It's gonna be oh, great. it's going to be great. It's totally fine. Like I said, we're just like going to have a conversation. I just happen to be recording it, right? I mean, it's fine. <laughs> um, so we're in the middle of lockdown right now. Like the world is kind of crazy with COVID and everything. Um. But people are kind of picking up very bizarre activities through quarantine or like not doing certain things. And I am just curious, this is like a little icebreaker. This really has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. <laughs> um, what is like your weirdest quarantine hobby or purchase or something that you've like added to your routine that you're just like, whoa, I never thought I'd do this. So it's really interesting. Um, at the beginning of the shelter in place orders here in California, it was mid-March and my partner and I, we had just moved into our house like the weekend before the Monday. So moved into a new house and then I proceeded to break my foot four days later. Um, (laughs) And so I feel like there were just certain things that compounded my time in in, in quarantine as it was in the shelter in place. So um, yeah, I kind of feel like in a sense, um, like I've made a lot of purchases. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of things that I, that I there's not a lot I haven't purchased. Um, but I had so many ideas of what I was going to do when we moved into our home. And then we got put on shelter in place. So many ideas within that. And then I broke my foot and I was on crutches and oh. I had a three-year-old at home and um, my partner's still working. And so it really kind of all the things I had planned, I no longer was able to, I couldn't even move a box in my house because I was on crutches. Right. So I um, had been long time watching my friend, Laura Bruner of Laura Colorado Roots make mm-hmm. sourdough. 
and yeah. had not yet fit that into my life. And so just like everybody else in quarantine, I ordered myself a sourdough starter um, and said, you know what, this is what I'm going to do. If I can stand in the kitchen with my foot rested, I'm just going to cook and a, a bunch of stuff um, and have some self-sustainability and um, just nourish my family. So mm -hmm. I amongst the masses, picked up <laughs> sourdough baking. Um, and I think really, even though it seems like it doesn't like tie into what we're going to dive into, it really has so much just in the connection that comes with sourdough. Um, people that I've met, and I know it sounds, sounds silly, <laughs> but the people that I've met and have connected with and friendships that have grown, um, and even just then also connections with my son, Mm -hmm. um, which have been really special. And I know we'll probably get into talking about Kai a little bit more, um, but I have a three and a half year old son, Kai, um, and he was diagnosed with autism in December of this last year. He's been receiving early intervention services for, since he was like 15 months old. Um, and, but this unexpected connection that he and I have had over, mm -hmm making sourdough and all of the discard recipes that come with it. Um, he would make pancakes every single day. We do almost um, with Amazing. that um, and other people that uh, have really impacted my time during quarantine. So it was a fun, a fun hobby I picked up because I was like, well, I have nothing but time. <laughs> so I might as well learn. Um, and it really just evolved into so, so much more. Oh, I absolutely love that. It's amazing how food can really bring us together and like that connection, especially with kids in the kitchen. It's like one of my absolute favorite things to do with my daughter as well. Just, it, it, it's like that, our special time together. And then yeah. sourdough is, it's commitment, right? It's not, <laughs> it's like a slow grow, it's a slow go process. I, I just started like dipping my toes in and um, I, I get what all the hype is about. It's like really yeah. fun, but it's three days to make a loaf of bread. <laughs> Yeah. So I, I, mean, I love it. There's so much nourishment that comes from it. It's gut healing. There's so much surrender yeah, and release that comes with it as well. And then I think, you know, just kind of, um, freedom in your body and, mm -hmm. and letting go. It, it, there's just so many different components. Like you could, I could dive way deep down into right. What yeah. sourdough, um, and that process has, has really done for me and for my family. But, um, but on the surface level, I mean, we're loving it. I just make everything with sourdough discard these days there's like nothing you can't make for, right do you have a favorite I mean, like, sourdough discard recipe or like oh, we well we eat pizza like weekly so we make sourdough pizza dough yeah sourdough pizza dough um oh at God. least once a week that's amazing sometimes more than once it's but it's so <laughs> delicious um and beyond that I really just love like you could google sourdough or whatever search engine you use sourdough discard recipes mm -hmm. and they're like infinite so I love to just try new things, so <laughs> new recipes. But yeah, we make pizza dough a lot. Cool. A lot, a lot. I love so. it. Um, talk to me more about Kai and like that, that transition. You said he was diagnosed in December. So you're coming up on what, six months now, seven months. Yes. Did yes. I, what Which is, is so, time I anymore? Have, but I, know, um, I had, I actually hadn't even taken a step back until you said that. Um, because we were very much, I, I feel like still in the processing phase when everything shut down. So it feels like it's still only been a couple of months, but it hasn't. It's been a much longer time than that. Um, so a little bit of the, the back history and um, my, I spent like the first 15 months <laughs> postpartum, I feel like really processing through 
my labor, my delivery um, were a, a little bit traumatic for me. Um, it was really long, <laughs> 60 hour labor, and it was really intense. And I thought that that was going to be like the most intense thing I went through. <laughs> right. It so wasn't. Um, and the first really nine months of Kai's life were very intense. Like intense was the theme. I had to like pick a word, a theme, right. um, because he didn't sleep well at all. Um, he was very hyper attached to me. He was very particular about how um, I held him and in what position, like he wanted me standing upright over my mm -hmm. left shoulder um, and it had to be me. And mm -hmm. so we, we went through this, that process right. um, of thinking and getting into our routines and letting go of certain expectations of how I thought or planned things to be. And we all know in parenthood, that, like, right. you know, plans are meaningless. Like it's just nothing <laughs> ever really works out in the way that we, we plan for them to be. Um, and then we started kind of hitting a rhythm and as an early childhood special educator, I've been in special education for over a decade. Um, my brain is always, always, always looking and thinking and looking for these developmental milestones and looking at, at every, microanalyzing everything he was doing. Um, and so around 12 months, I said, I, he has a speech and language delay. I just know it. <laughs> and most people, including my like SLP, speech language pathologist friends, were like, Melissa, it's like, you know, we got to take a breath here. And um, he's 12 months old. There's that, that's still very, very young. And yeah, let's like keep an eye on this. But um, he's, he's just hit one year old. And so, um, you know, I just constantly had these thoughts in the back of my mind. Um, and at 15 months, I really was kind of like, okay, I waited. <laughs> I waited, but I do think that there are some delays here and I really want to start to look at that. So um, we referred him to our local regional center. Um, I talked to my pediatrician. I am very familiar with this process, again, being in the field, um, but spoke to our pediatrician. I made the referral just so people know you don't have to have a pediatrician to make a referral. You as a parent can call um, in your local area and say, I have concerns about these things in my child's development. Um, and that's what they're there for. And it's free. Um, they're part C early intervention services. So, um, so I called, we got him evaluated. He ended up qualifying for some services. Um, and really in that birth to three range, it's based on what the family feels like they need. Um, it's very home-based. And then when kids turn three, it shifts into like the public schools and educational-based service. But so anyway, so at that time, we were looking at speech and language therapy and occupational therapy and um, just some regular overall developmental supports um, because his language was really, really delayed. And um, he engage in a lot of like sensory seeking behaviors. So he would find like bony parts of my body and he still does. And he like pushes his head into them. And, um, and so there were just some of these things where I was like, Oh yeah, I'm seeing some signs and like, maybe we sh can get some support for this. So fast forwarding, right. To, um, typically when you're looking at a medical diagnosis of autism, it's happening somewhere around like 30 to 36 ish months. Um, and so we were seeing some signs um, and indicators that pointed to autism. We had many counter indicators 
Um, for example, Kai has great eye contact. Um, he majority of the time responds to his name. He has a great three point reference. So like if he points to something and he looks at it, um, he's looking at you to see if you're also looking that three point reference. Um, he has an interest in kids his age. Um, he watches very intently. Um, he's got great social reciprocity. So some of these things that I think we think a little bit more stereotypically about autism, um, that were counter indicators for him, but there was still, were still things that felt like there's more going on here. Um, he's, he's very anxious socially, not in like big groups, but if someone wanted to have a direct, you know, interaction with him, particularly with adults. So, um, we had him assessed and I knew that that was coming. And so we had him medically assessed. And then it also comes with the transition to school-based services at the time that kids turn three. So that process starts around, um, their second and a half birthday time, so six months prior to them turning three, um, you start having these transition planning meetings to talk about school-based services. So all of that was going on <laughs> at the same time um, in that kind of like November, December period. And um, yeah, we got his diagnosis, which as much as I felt like I was prepared, I was not prepared. Um, and I had colleagues who were part of the team because I, I work in this area. And um, so I'm sure that it was very difficult for them. And I always think I'm like, I don't know, do you want to know me or not? Because like, you probably are like, oh, that's so nice, but not nice to have to assess like your colleague or your friend's child. Um, and it was, yeah, it was really, really difficult, I think, for, for them to watch from a friend's standpoint us get that diagnosis. Um, and so we kind of just, we, we took it. And I think what's difficult in those moments and what I wish that like more parents who were receiving certain diagnoses, because we categorize things in this country, we label things. That's just what we do in our society. Um, because I, say it to people all the time. And as professionals, we say it to people that like, this does not change who your child is. Like for us, like Kai is still Kai. And in that moment, it still felt like everything had changed and he had changed and how I looked at him changed. Even though we'd been going through this process <laughs> for, you know, better part of a year and a half leading up to now. Um, and I just wish that that parents could truly know that and believe that in their hearts that it, it's, it does not change anything about your child. Um, and it doesn't mean that anything has to change. And so this is part of what I feel like I've gone through in the last seven months of, of shifting in, in my perspective and how I think about Kai's disability and how we advocate and support for him um, and that process. Because things have definitely changed. I think from my perspective as like an early childhood special educator and even where I was at in that moment in December when we received his diagnosis. It's a so, huge transition that you've been through in the last, I mean, just seven months. And yeah. Adding a pandemic on top of that as well. Yeah. So it's been, process. yeah. So once Kai turned three, he turned three in January. That's when he shifted. It's like a lot of jargon. I, implore people, I mean, you can link my contact. If people have questions about this, I'm happy to like dive real into it <laughs> um, with anyone who has questions. It's, 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 a, it's really 
a very involved process that's very difficult for people to understand because there's like all kinds of legal um, pieces that have to take place because of federal and state laws. Um, and none of that, I feel like, makes it easier for an actual parent to understand yeah. the process. Um, and so I have the blessing and the curse of understanding it really, really well, but also the side of I, I know way more, I can't turn my brain off. I know way more than I want to know. Um, I, know too I much. think way more than I want to. It's, it's just, it's like, I, I wish I could turn that piece off. Um, but when Kai turned three, it, the, his services shifted to school. So we got him started in a preschool program. Um, and that was going really, really, really well. I was so nervous and anxious about the transition because new places and new people are difficult for him. Um, but we had all of these supports set up um, and had prepared him and he was in school for like a month and two weeks and everything shut down. So um, it's been a lot to process because I feel like we've spent so much time trying to do things the right way. I say right in, in a very air quoted way. Um, but me checking off the boxes of what I'm supposed to do when I have, you know, when there was a suspected disability and that's all been stripped away now at this point. So that's been tough to, to kind of go through where we're at in the grief cycle of, of getting a diagnosis um, and making the transition and then having to readjust um, really, really quickly shortly thereafter. So what a huge transition. And I mean, you are not alone in this world, right? Like so many parents um, with kids with disabilities are are struggling with this, like, because the resources go away, right? Mm-hmm. That was one of my questions. Um, it's like, so with that transition into the public school support and then the world the way it is right now, or at least for the foreseeable future, what does that support system look like for you guys? Does it exist? <laughs> this is a real question. I just don't, I don't know. Yeah. No, so unfortunately, and, and again, each area differs because each state, each county, each, we're all in flux and it's fluid and, um, you know, mo- looking forward into next year, some places are opening in person for schools and some places are not. We are opening in 100% distance learning. Um, but all of those kind of variables aside, I think what happened universally in March is um, every family lost their respite. So whatever that looked like, whether it was school or um, respite was part of their services that were offered like through the county, outside of school, outside of education, um, therapies, most of that was stripped away. And so similar to everyone else, we all kind of found ourselves at home or majority of people, not everyone, um, found themselves at home or found their children at home while they still had to go to work. Um, And then it's compounded by you have certain levels of support that may have been layered in, and now that is gone. And so essentially what we've seen, I know here in our area is an uptick in um, residential placements for individuals with disabilities um, because it, it's just, families are overwhelmed. Um, there's no, there's no support. So it's really, um, we are, we're very um, privileged in the sense that we have a nanny who comes to our home, who's been with Kai since he's was seven months old. Um, and so she is one of like three trusted adults in his life, myself, my partner and our nanny. 
Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been really tough. And then when you, you think about schools and at that age, um, it's, you know, 100% contingent upon a caregiver being there to support that learning. Um, and so much of learning for preschoolers happens through play. Yeah. Um, and so I can, you know, play with kids, but it's not the same as when kids play with kids, obviously. Um, adults have, are a little bit more like, well, kids have their own agendas, right? Let's <laughs> sure. We know that they very much have their own agendas, but, you know, adults have kind of like this concrete way of thinking about how we play with things and kids mm -hmm. are just more imaginative than that. Yeah. And then, you know, we grow older and, and lose some of that. But, um, but yeah, I don't know if that's, it, it just is, it's, it's compounded. It's compounded for everyone. And it is especially difficult for families of children with exceptional needs. Yeah. Um, because you just lose that. And I think the biggest thing for me as well that is different and what has been so hard is I talked a little bit about how Kai was excelling in school. We were hearing lots of pop-out phrases, um, like, what is it? Where to go? Um, who's that? I mean, just things he was hearing in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And for context, Kai generally speaks in like one word utterances. Mm -hmm. um, and his vocabulary is definitely growing, but he's at like an 18 month delay in terms of language. So, um, and so when we were hearing these phrases, it was really exciting because he was using multiple words and they were really appropriate. So when he was using it, so he's hearing it modeled, he's got great imitation and that was almost immediate, the regression in that skill. And so I'm, you know, I think it's, it's watching Children are all experiencing a certain level of regression of skills in this time, um, but I know for Kai and for many others, it's it's occurring at an exponentially um, more rapid rate, and it will be more difficult um, for him to recoup those skills. It will take him more time sure. um, than a neurotypical child, you know, would take. Um, knowing that again, regression occurs anytime there's a break, like summer break. Yeah. Um, but it, it will take, you know, him longer. And for some, for some individuals, it may be skills that they never get back. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's the part that feels really, really heavy for me that weighs really heavy on my heart, uh, not just for my son, but for, you know, the population of individuals that I work with yeah. and the families that I support, um, that that is difficult. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to think about. And then I shift a little bit, right? So in some of this that I've been thinking about, because there are times and and in and throughout this whole process with Kai and and I have to, um, you know, give a really solid shout out to my husband BJ, um, who has been an incredible support, um, and he will be the first one to say like I drive the the ship when it comes to kai's education and advocating for these services because i'm in the field and he just puts an immense amount of trust in me to make these decisions mm -hmm. <laughs> um because it's what i do and because he trusts me and so it's great but it's, i'm like also like no pressure um but um but i also find myself in these moments where i really envy um his relationship with kai because he is such a great support and he supports me and he supports the decisions that we're making, but he really gets to enjoy Kai for like Kai 
They have so much fun together. Their interactions are effortless. Like it's just this really beautiful companionship that they have. And sometimes I feel paralyzed by all of my thoughts and all of the things that I should be doing to address these areas of need that Kai has to help him to, um, you know, bridge these gaps, which is not the point of special education. Also, it will throw that caveat out there as a special <laughs> educator that it's really not there to bridge the gap, but it's, it's supposed to help with access. Sure. Right. A more equitable access. But for me, I'm thinking, here's all these things I have to do to, to help Kai be able to, to build skills to be a functioning and contributing member to society. And then I started thinking more about, well, but what if I didn't treat his disability as this like problem that needed to be solved or something that needed to be cured or something that needed to be fixed? Um, and if I release myself of that, like who could I be and where would we be and what kind of mom could I be for Kai? Um, and it, then it just kind of comes into, you know, this point of access, which is something that, you know, the inclusion, which is a core value. And I always list my core values because I feel like it gives a good kind of, um, it just helps keep the perspective when I talk about things. <laughs> um, but, you know, where I'm coming from, where that foundation is built for me. Um, but just thinking of, you know, I, I feel like the greatest challenge to a disability is actually our society. And I read this post this morning about it from Fidget and Fries, which I highly recommend. Follow. Sorry, I don't know if I plug that stuff here, but yeah, um, <laughs> I love she, all the resources. Um, she's an autistic adult mm. um, mm. who has autistic children. And she has an incredible perspective. I've learned so much from following her and other actually autistic individuals. Um, it's been really, really powerful to sit and listen. I think we're in a time where we're sitting and listening a lot on many, many, many different, um, different things. I, that's not a great super descript, but like we're listening a lot, um, on many different topics. Um, and so anyways, but she had posted and really, you know, when we look at society, because we have this like deeply rooted perception that there's these expectations of what the norm is. Yeah, And what, what it would be if we could step outside of that norm and really normalize differences, right? Um, and so that's what I've really, I think, you know, the biggest shift for me during this quarantine period is shifting out of this needs-focused, um, you know, way of thinking and really looking at um, and celebrating all of Kai's um, unique traits um, that make him such a spectacular human being, um, and, you know, releasing myself. And I think that this resonates with, with parents so much, but releasing myself of expectations so that I can really be present, um, and, and enjoy my son for everything that he is. I love that so much. Oh. It's so it's, it's not about like making your son fit the world. It's like making sure that the world can fit with him. Right. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah. It's, it's really, yeah, about what if just there was a place in society for everyone. And then instead of having to conform to this norm, there was just a spot for that. So we, you know, talk about accessibility instead of there being, you know, one wheelchair entrance to a building. What if they were all universally designed to be acceptable, right. you know, accessible for 
anyone who needed to enter. Yeah. And it, you didn't have to, you know, go around to the back of a building to access the one entrance. So it's just kind of that like universal design and not because um, I, from like a social media standpoint, right? Like I don't close caption my videos when I record them because I don't know anyone who is deaf or hard of hearing. But what if we all just started to engage in some of those practices so mm -hmm. that anyone can access and within the community um, or not just doing it now because I know one person or I, has a, I have a follower who is, but because we just are universally creating practices where we don't have to accommodate people, right? If we, we stop thinking about it, oh, I'm accommodating this one, these one or two people, but it just is what we do. Just the new norm. For everyone, right? Um, and who that invites into your space, right? right? Because there are points of access that, um, that are inhibitive. Um, so, you know, being able to provide, you know, alternative text for pictures and, and closed captions on videos and, um, and, you know, for a multitude of reasons for people who have auditory processing disorders and who maybe English is not their first language and, um, and because like 85% of the world listens or watches Instagram stories on mute. <laughs> so for all of those reasons, but, um, but yeah, really just, just kind of creating, um, and having people think a little bit more, right? Like how is this, does this space create barriers? And right. how, is we, how can we as a society start to break those down? Um, and again, normalize the differences as opposed to, well, what do we need to do to accommodate now for this one person in this one instance? Right, I love that so much. And one of the barriers that instantly came to mind when you were talking about that was actually the language that we use, especially like in the birthing world, when mm -hmm. we talk about like, you know, more gender binary terms yeah. like mom, dad, pregnant women versus pregnant yep. people. Um, and I know that's been a really big shift that I've seen, thank God, in the last you know year or so in my space, it's like, okay, we're starting to shift and use more of these fluid inclusive terms to really know that there is a safe space here for people who don't identify as a pregnant woman, right? You can be a pregnant person. Um, definitely a learning curve there, but I think it's it's really amazing to see and what if it didn't have to be like this, you know, thought, it's just, you just use inclusive language and it doesn't detract from anybody that might identify as a mom, like yep. me calling you a parent doesn't take away from the fact that you identify as a mom. Right. Rather it's inclusive exactly. of all types of parents. So. Yeah. And I, I think this is like the intersectionality between, so I know we spend a lot of time talking about Kai and, and um, parenting a child with a disability and a little bit, you know, my work in special education, but I also... I founded this nonprofit yeah. this last year yeah. with BirthFit. So um, I've been involved with BirthFit. And I know you and Jenny have, have, have spoken about this. I, I'm going with the assumption that your listeners <laughs> know a little <laughs> bit about because you you both have been involved with BirthFit at some point mm -hmm. um, a little bit, but both are still involved in the birthing world. Yeah. Um, anyways, I found BirthFit in 2017 when I was going through my <laughs> really um, intense period of time immediately postpartum with Kai. And um, it was really about trying to make some connections and feeling like we have, there's got to be a, a better way to support our birthing people. Um, and there's got to be a better way to do that postpartum because oh, I was feeling very, very, um, you know, alone and isolated. And, and I, again, I think that resonates with a lot of people is it just feels like you, you spent three quarters of a year or the better part of a year um, growing this tiny human and having people love and dote on you and provide for you. And then you have the baby and it's kind of like, 
cool. I'm like, where did Good all the people that. go? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so anyway, so I got involved with BirthFit and um, really was able to connect with such an incredible community. And last year at the BirthFit Summit um, was actually where I met Jenny. And because I had, um, I had approached Lindsay Matthews, the CEO and the founder and said, you know, so I'd been running some classes and doing some work and, um, with the birth fit programming, which is fantastic. Um, but I was feeling a little bit unfulfilled in the work that I was doing just because I, this nature and this part of me that, that thinks about access and that thinks about, um, you know, that there are disparities um, in the work that we're doing. And so what are we doing, you know, to help support these, um, you know, undernourished portions of our population who are really, you know, we're seeing in many ways are the ones who are, are most impacted. Um, and so there was kind of like a group of people and, and Lindsay was like, oh, you should definitely talk to Jenny and you should talk to a couple of these other leaders. And, um, so we just kind of started having a conversation about like, what could that look like and what could we do and what action item could we take? And so long story short of the course of the several months following that, um, the idea of having a nonprofit side of BirthFit was born. Um, and so I, um, and was fortunate enough to be selected to lead <laughs> the formation of this. Um, and I'm really working on saying like, believing that I am the best person to do this, right? I, I used to say like, I don't know why, but no, because I have this specific skill set um, and this vision for it. And so BirthFit for Everyone was conceptualized. And the idea behind it was really, you know, advocacy is, is so important. And when we think about the birthing world and the disparities that exist. So in this country, our maternal mortality rates are like, they're shit. They're really bad. They've been that way for decades and finally had new data that was released like a couple of years ago. Again, time holds no value anymore. I feel like I've lost a whole year, but they were released in 2017, I think. 2018, 2018. One of those two years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, and what we saw, because it had been 10 years, so it was 2018, it had been 10 years since they were last released, which was in 2008. And what we saw was they were still crap. They had not changed, which means that we're not doing any better. And we have the worst maternal mortality rate out of any developed country. And then within that, we look at the racial disparities mm. that Black birthing people are four to five times more likely as a national statistic, right? Four to five times more likely to die um, from a pregnancy or birth related, anywhere between, you know, from pregnancy to a year postpartum than their white counterparts. And that's up to like 12 times more likely to die in places like in New York, for example. Um, and those statistics have remained unchanged as well. And the root of a lot of that, the root of that, because for Black birthing people, it, it transcends across socioeconomic status, education level, um, and it really comes down to this presence of institutional racism. Um, and in you know, the last couple of months, um, racism in America has become a very popular conversation and that we're looking at, you know, the presence of racism and the disproportionate representation of black people in 
many different sets of our of our nation, you know, and, and representation in education and in, um, you know, death by lethal force in um, prisons and in healthcare. I, I mean, and we're seeing in all these areas, right? So the racism being prevalent. Um, so what the nonprofit was looking at, how are we as BirthFit advocating, you know, on some of these issues and how can we as leaders collaborate with other organizations and other leaders within communities, not just BirthFit leaders, but other leaders in the communities who are doing this work, because this is not new, right. maybe new news to some people, but this is not a new problem. Um, and so really looking at how can we, um, what can we do? And what can we do from like a national level, because BirthFit, you know, isn't just there are leaders in various different places, but it's not local, right? To only one place where you can access. So that's kind of where the, the nonprofit came from. How do we support um, diversity in BirthFit? Um, how do we support birthing people? How do we support black birthing people? How do we support the fourth trimester? Because in addition to our maternal mortality rates, infant mortality rates, like black infants are two and a half more times more likely to die in their first year of life than their white counterparts. Um, Hey friend, Liz here to share all about my new favorite lactation drinks from Milks to Brew. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that nursing and milk supply have been a big source of stress in my early postpartum experience. And this is why I am so glad a friend and midwife recommended Milks to Brew. Milks to makes vegan, organic, and decaf instant lattes and a pink herbal fruit tea infusion. And they are both so delicious. I enjoy the coffee, both hot and iced. And I love the pink herbal tea iced on a hot day. I throw some collagen peptides in it, whisk it up, lots of ice and sip on it while I'm nursing that sweet babe. Both blends feature galacticogs like moringa, dates, oats, and brewer's yeast to support a healthy milk supply. So if you are making milk, I highly recommend adding milk to your daily routine. And right now you are lucky beyond birth listeners can get 10% off your entire order with code Liz winters. So head over to milksta.com. That's M I L K S T A.com to order. So what can we do, right? What can we do about that? And then when I was thinking in my work of, of how my participation in birth, it was, you know, really helping to addressing that was where I was kind of feeling like, you know, I was offering a fee based service mm -hmm. and that in itself creates a barrier of sure. access. Um, and also knew that there were some local grant opportunities in my area that were looking at programs and supports for birthing people, um, black birthing people and people of low socioeconomic status. And so all of that, right, kind of came together and said, well, how can we access that? And how can we help more BirthFit leaders access that? Or how can we help to partner with other organizations to tap into more of this funding if you didn't have a nonprofit or an organization in your area? Mm -hmm. um, you know, for example, like the, the, Black, Doula, the Black Doula, Sabia Wade, <laughs> Sabia Wade has her um, nonprofit in the area. So she, she has her um, full spectrum doula trainings that she offers, but then she also has a nonprofit 
the village that provides doula support um, in her area. And so it was really just starting to look at, okay, so that it's an incredible resource and, you know, collaboration and being able to have access to, but if you're in a more rural area or you're in an area that's maybe doesn't have as many resources, what can we do, right, to help, help support that? So, um, so the nonprofit really, Birth Fit for Everyone, is really about um, helping to support aspiring birth workers in the BIPOC communities and helping to support um, Black birthing people and birthing people, um, you know, who may not have the financial means, the financial privilege to pay for certain services, or that may be a big, you know, concern for them um, to be able to access support. Our focus is in the fourth trimester. So right. those first three months postpartum. So those are the services. And it's such a critical right? time, right? That fourth trimester is such a critical period. Like you're really setting your, your relationship up with with baby, with your partner, if you're in a partnered relationship, you know, it's like laying, it's laying that foundation. And like, as you know, and you had a really stressful fourth trimester too, right? I mean, I actually don't know anybody that was, that has had like, oh, my fourth trimester was so easy. It was so but, easy. I had everything I needed. It was so perfect. <laughs> but wouldn't that be amazing if that was what we normalized, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you normalized community support, if you normalized like postpartum body support. Yes. (laughs) If that can really, if we really treated it like the rehab that it like birth, like the event that needs rehab that it is, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And we did that for everyone, not just those, right. Who are financially privileged to. Not just white bones, right? Yep. (laughs) I mean, I remember when these conversations had very first started at, at birth fit and, um, I don't know that you and I ran into each other during this point because I was with BirthFit through early part of 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, what is time anymore? Yes. <laughs> but one of the things that they had talked about at the 2018 summit was we need to look around the room right now because primarily at that point and probably still now, BirthFit yes. is primarily white female identified people. Mm-hmm. Right. And yes. so we can only do so much, right? It's, it's if it, something that I've been hearing more consistently is that if we want to improve the black maternal mortality rate, that we need to have more birth workers of color in there, but mm-hmm. under like the cultural competence. Um, yes. And also, I mean, there's a lot of work to be done outside of that as well, but you yes. need to have that trust in that, in that space. Yeah. So, you know, we talk about big systems overhauls, which we're at, we're there, we're talking about, right. Some of the big system overhauls. Um, and those are going to take a lot of time and even within, you know, smaller organizations takes time. Um, but yeah, but the, the power behind having someone who looks like you, who identifies in a similar way as you to support you, um, and, and I remember having this conversation last year at the um, BirthFit Summit as well. And, um, and something that BirthFit as an organization has been aware of and having conversations about and working on um, in the past years, uh, but being as a person of color, looking around a room and very, very often I show up and look around a room and there's not a lot of people who look like me. 
right. um, and, and in the space. And so, you know, really being able to, to walk into a room and, and see other people who look like you um, is very, very powerful. And then when you think about, you know, just being in a, a group setting like that, and then you think about in a vulnerable space of birthing, um, how important that is um, and how much agency that, that can help provide someone. Um, and just, we think about, you know, environmental stressors and stressors from racism that are, that are apparent, um, and being able to have a support person who understands that, um, and, and in ways can really provide the agency to help alleviate some of that is really powerful. So, um, that was something that was really, um, deeply important to me. And I know BirthFit right now has, um, pulled their, uh, leadership training programming and they're doing a complete revamp, um, mm -hmm of the training. So that's coming in January of 2020. Um, tw nope, 2021. Well, there we go. 2020 is gone. <laughs> what is time? <laughs> We're actually just going to scrap this whole year and just pick right back up. Just try it again. Um, but yeah, so, uh, and we're actually, I don't know when this will, will go live. Possibly the application process will be closed by then, but, um, we uh, had some donations that came in from Joy and Claire. Oh, yeah. This is Joy and Claire community. Um, and they are going to support um, aspiring postpartum doulas Perfect. to have a full scholarship through National Black Doulas Association's postpartum doula training. Amazing. Um, so we're getting ready to launch that tomorrow. Uh, we're recording this on a Thursday. Launches tomorrow. Well, we'll tomorrow. just get how long is the application process um, open? It's gonna be open for two weeks. So if we're gonna, even this, this, if this doesn't air, it will. You'll at least be able to share out that the applications are coming, and then people will know that's what I was talking about. <laughs> um, but really, really excited to be able to offer this opportunity, and um, this is kind of the first big thing we've been able to offer since we formed. Um, I even talk about my incredible, amazing board of directors. Yeah. Um, and this all kind of went on like a weird side tangent, relevant tangent. But um, when we talk about accessibility, right, and inclusive language, um, but our board of directors that we have um, includes Lindsay Matthews um, and Tracy Collins of National Black Duelist Association, mm -hmm. um, Aiden Dowling, who um, is a trans man. Uh, newish, I say newish father because um, Antler's getting a little bit older um, now, but he spoke last year, he was on the partner panel that Bertha did at the summit, um, and that was, I, I felt like, such a really, really powerful panel, um, and uh, Daniel Uresti, who is, um, he works for UC Berkeley in um, their, like, he, he works in their, like, diversity like department, but he does like all the finances and budgets and all the things. So he's like kind of like a numbers guy, but um, diversity and inclusion is really, really important um, in the work that he does as well. Um, and Dr. Cody Weiner, who is an OBGYN out of Houston, um, who has just been a really strong advocate for birth fit and kind of this like holistic approach and support and honoring, you know, the, the pregnant person and their body and, and the rehabilitation piece of it. So, um, I feel like I have such like a rock star stellar board. Absolutely. Um, powerhouse group of people. Yeah. That really is able to, you know, kind of look through the lens of, of access and inclusion. And um, so it's really exciting work. And then what we are working towards as well is, is identifying aspiring birth workers and helping to support them to 
become professionals, birth professionals, and also then being able to, again, like I mentioned before, provide that postpartum support. Um, we really are, are kind of putting together like a service package um, that would end up being roughly 60 hours of support over those first four weeks postpartum um, and paying the birth professional their full service fee. Okay. So compounded in within all of this, and when we talk about, you know, these disparities in the maternal health world, is there's also this disparity in pay, which I know exists in other entities as well, outside of, right, um, these discrepancies in pay, but where we find, you know, birth workers who are serving our BIPOC communities who are providing that support and are getting paid substantially less. It's like, you can't make a living, you it's really difficult to continue to provide a support and service. And so really honoring people's time and training and um, their expertise and the support that they bring. So, um, and the reality that some people have to go back to work right. very, very quickly, right. like two weeks or less. It's unbelievable. Um, and how, you know, critical it might be just to have someone come overnight, like two nights a week. Right. So you get some sleep instead of no sleep kind of yeah. thing. So what an incredible, incredible thing that you're doing. I am just, I am, I'm just in awe of you. I'm just in awe of you. And, um, if, if people want to get involved or if they want to help support birth fit for everyone, are there certain ways that they could do that? Yes. So they can find us on Instagram mm-hmm. at birthfit underscore nonprofit. Or they can find us on the interwebs um, at nonprofit.birthfit.com. Um, and so if they want to support there, that's where, um, and it's linked through on our Instagram profile as well. Um, but if people are wanting to support scholarships um, or support for birthing people, um, postpartum support for birthing people, they can donate there. It's also, um, you know, the space where, uh, if people want to apply for those scholarships, um, that will eventually be an ongoing um, process. And um, we, so if people want to support financially, they can find us there. Um, and again, as we continue to grow forward, it's, it's really being able to support birthing people as well to um, get the support and the birth professionals who will be providing it. Um, so that will be, stay tuned. Stay tuned. I love <laughs> the growth sustainable circle, right? It's not just about one person. It's about the whole system. And I think that that's amazing. Yay. I love this so much. And I'm just, I'm again, so pleased that you came on the show and talked about all these important things. Cause I don't think we're being taught. It's it's being talked about enough. I don't think there, you can talk about it enough. Yeah, I know. I was like, I feel like I could probably go on and on and on. (laughs) Um, and yeah, and I just hope that that the conversations, right, continue to be starting points for other people to have conversations and continuing points for people to continue to have conversations um, because that's where, right, it's like this incremental change that, that happens, but through conversation comes education and, um, you know, knowledge and, and perspective. And um, so that's what I really hope people are able to continue to take away from whatever, I, you know, I'm just honored to, to be in a space where I'm honored that people are listening, for mm-hmm. everyone that's listening. Um, and yeah, 
to have have the space to to start a conversation and continue a conversation. So good. And thank you so much for sharing so much about um, Kai and your family and like that amazing transition that you guys are going through. I know that a lot of our parents are really going to resonate with that, um, with that whole experience. So I just appreciate you being a really like an open book on that. Um, Cause again, it's another piece of the world that isn't talked about enough. Yeah. I just think solidarity for, you know, solidarity and parenthood. Yes. I think we do that, right? We, we, right. we talk about that um, and conversations continue about that. Um, and we know that parent guilt is a real thing. Mm. So many things that, you know, resonate on that level, but I think parents of neurodivergent, kiddos and neurodivergent individuals it um you know the, our stories are equally as important to be told um and that there's a space for that Beautiful. for that too for sure if um other parents wanted to connect with you would they connect with you through uh birthfit nonprofit or is there another space that they can connect with you uh so my personal instagram is melissa.a.guevara um, I'm the only person behind the, you know, birth fit for everyone right now. I can't say that that will like always be, <laughs> I'm, I'm manifesting, right? We're going to have a whole team. It's going to be huge. So it won't always be me, but, um, but yeah, I, I'm happy to, you know, connect with, with parents and, um, I can share, I'm happy to share my email address too, um, with you and you can link it through wherever you link things through. All the show notes. Show notes or something. Show notes. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I, I, I really am, um, you know, connection again is one of my huge core values and being able to connect with others. Um, you know, I, I, I feel like there's a lot of mutual benefit that comes from that. Um, but all tied together connection with that advocacy piece, but really if parents, you know, are, are wanting to connect and feel a little less, maybe alone, mm-hmm. um, I'm here for it. I, I really it. am. Thank you so much. And I love, I love just use everything we talked about today just really highlights your core values, inclusion, advocacy, connection. Like you are just all, you're living it and I love it. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Beyond Birth Podcast. If you love what you're hearing, we'd be so thrilled if you'd subscribe, rate, and leave a review for our podcast wherever you enjoy listening. Until next time.